Welcome to Smith Memorial Online. We're glad you joined us today. We're located in Collinsville, Virginia. At Smith Memorial, our motto is simple, follow Jesus. We'd like to encourage you to check us out online, www.smithmemorialumc.com. There you can find out more information about us, opportunities to serve, and ways to support this ministry through giving. We pray that God would add blessing this day to the hearing and the doing of God's Word. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to continue our sermon series from the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. This is also a shameless plug. This uh, sermon, you can go on our website and you'll find them all there. That was a little shameless. Today we pick up with Paul. He has, has promoted this gospel that is contrary to this other gospel, which he was to say is no gospel at all that these false teachers have given. And he goes um, on this little stint in where he is explaining to everyone his authority as an apostle. He then recounts, after kind of talking about who he is as one of the most prominent of all the Jews, he talks about a time... 14 years ago, in his day, that he went to Jerusalem to check on whether or not the gospel that he is preaching is, in fact, in accordance with what those apostles have deemed God's Spirit had been doing. We pick up today in verse 6. After Paul pleads with those who he calls the pillars of the church, he writes, And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted for the gospel for the circumcised, For he worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me, sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, which is Peter's name, and John, who were acknowledged as pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, 
agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and that they and to they to those who are circumcised. They only asked one thing that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. But when Cephas, whose name is also Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For uncertain people came from James. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and he kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is also Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, Paul says, by birth, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law. Because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our efforts to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What he's saying is is that if we ourselves who have been justified still sin, is Christ a servant of that? And Paul's answer is no. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Friends, these are words of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Speak, O Lord, once again, for your servants are listening. 
we gather together today, O God, and we acknowledge the shortcomings that we all are faced with. We acknowledge that through you we have been justified and yet we still live lives of sin. Grant us, O God, once more a word of your mercy. And help us to be merciful to others. Grant in us, O God, not the desire to try to work our way out of situations, but a desire in hearing the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, a desire to seek repentance and forgiveness. May we, O God, hear once again of your good news. Amen. Something that I always believed has been confirmed in me this week. It's this, that being a pastor is the equivalent of wearing a sign on your back that reads 24-7, open for questions. It's inevitable, and the questions that I have received are are some of the, the craziest questions that they assume because they find out that I'm a pastor that I should know. It's inevitable. As soon as someone finds out that I'm a pastor, I'm put in the limelight in a manner that I imagine that Gotham City would do to Bruce Wayne if they ever found out he was really Batman. It happened just this past week. I was out at a public event. I introduced myself to those who gathered, and before you knew it, a young man came to me and began to tell me his whole life story. Mind you, I just met him. We sparked small talk. We laughed awkwardly during the opening pauses, and then, without hesitation, the man began to just jump right in. My grandmother tells me that I'm an abomination to this world. My mother thinks I'm the world's biggest sinner. You see, the gentleman in front of me, the one that I had just met 30 seconds before, had come to tell me his story because he had a question he wanted to ask me. He told me where he was from, where he now lives, and in the midst of our conversation, he set out to let me know, and by the way, I'm gay. And in light of revealing this announcement, he asked me the question as straight as he could ask it. Do you think I'm a sinner? That's the easiest question a pastor could be asked. So I quickly piped up, of course I do. And then I immediately, after I quickly blurted out the easy answer, I followed it with this. And I would think that regardless of who you loved. But don't feel bad, I think the same about myself. You see, today we continue our series in Galatians. And as we do, we must come to a very important piece of information, a piece of information that I am convinced might be a real newsflash to some of you. You are a sinner. And no, Paul and I are not talking about the three or four things that you need to do in order to receive the not-so-coveted sports award most improved player. After all, nobody really wants that award anyhow. 
It would be the equivalent of receiving an award that said, you stunk worse than a skunk last year, and this year you were just awful. So here, you're the most improved player. No, when Paul speaks about sin, he does it with a capital S. Suggesting that sin is not just something that you do, it's a force, or as he calls it in Romans, it is a power and a principality that has held humanity within its grasp as a master would hold an imprisoned slave. Paul thinks it's important that we understand that this is our status in the world, lest we get too cocky about ourselves. We are sinners who stand in need of grace. So no, it didn't matter to Paul if you were gay or straight, murderer or innocent, you all held the same title. You were a sinner. You were a sinner, for you were under the powers and principalities of sin. And this is why, as we heard last week, God, had, God didn't need you to save yourself. For in fact, you were indeed far too gone to do such a miraculous thing. This was the image of the drowning man who, instead of being told to kick harder to save himself, he came to the conclusion that kicking harder would only drain his energy and kill him faster. No, he didn't need to kick harder. What he needed to do was he needed to have a Savior who would come and rescue him someone who would pick him up out of his muck and his mire, someone who would deliver him from his current situation. And to stick with the imagery of the person drowning and needing to be saved, if you were a lifeguard or you ever received drowning is a warning, you would know that salvation, saving someone drowning, is a one-way street. It's like the videos that can be seen on TV or on YouTube of special forces diving training. They say that when the person is drowning, they will be grabbing for whatever they can in order to hold themselves afloat. And they teach you that it is your job as the lifeguard, if necessary, to knock that person out in order to rescue them. Salvation is a one-way street. This is Paul's message of the gospel. God has acted decisively in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world through setting the captive free and breaking down the powers and the principalities, those things that hold us in bondage, those things that we call sin with a capital S. You see, this is the news, Paul says. This is the good news, news that almost sounds too good to be true in a world that says pick yourself up by your bootstraps. This was such outstanding news to Paul that he feared that he might be preaching this message falsely. So Paul recounts in our letter today that about, about a time before he interacted with the churches in Galatia, that he went to the leaders who were in Jerusalem to ensure that his preaching had not been in vain. That the Gentiles did, in fact, not need to be circumcised, and that God had, in fact, acted decisively for the sake of the Gentiles in a manner that freed them from a binding law. 
You see, after Paul pleaded his case with these pillars, the apostles, Paul writes that James, Peter, and John, upon hearing this message, decreed that this gospel was in fact God's movement in the world. They shook hands with Paul and Barnabas. They blessed them and continuing to preach that message. And the only restraint they put on Paul was this, on your way, do not forget the poor. Sometime later, while Paul was visiting a church in Antioch, Peter came to check to see how things were going. While he was there, Peter joined the Gentiles in a meal. And this, friends, is big stuff. This is Peter living out what he agreed God was doing amongst the Gentiles. A Jew eating with those who are unclean. Perhaps he was eating shellfish or pork or some other clean meat. Something that would deem any law-abiding Jew unfit and unrighteous. Peter was having a blast. Then out of the corner of Peter's eye, he sees some people from James, that is to say, some pious Jews from Jerusalem. And like a teenager at lunch who had been spotted by his clique eating with the uncool kids, Peter quickly jumped up and went and sat with his old friends. And at seeing this, Paul, to use the slang, he got some beef with Peter. The same beef he had with Peter is the same beef he had with those false teachers in Galatia. The one... He, the ones he utilizes the story of Peter to illustrate. Now the question you might ask is, what is that beef that Paul has? The beef he has is hypocrisy. What is it about you, Peter, that though you were born a Jew, you live like a Gentile? And yet, when your Jewish friends show up, you require the Gentiles to live like Jews. For Paul, this is hypocrisy of the law at its finest. It's not that Paul was ticked off because Peter decided he would revert back to not eating shrimp. No. For Peter, Paul was ticked off because to require the Gentiles to observe the laws around food and table fellowship was to also heap on the Gentiles every other law as well. And in so doing, reversing the work of Christ, the one who fulfilled this law in himself so that those of us who were not able to do it on our own accord might be able to be made righteous through him who could and did do it for us. This is why Paul writes so scathingly in verses 15 through 21. We ourselves, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if... In our effort to be justified in Christ, we have been found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
But if I build up the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I'm a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I have entered into Christ's suffering. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, for Paul, what's at stake in this simple transgression of Peter, a prominent figure who's eating in the midst of a foreign people trying to understand the gospel, was that leaving their table fellowship was in fact teaching them that something more than what Christ has done was necessary for them to be justified to God. When Peter left the table, he was teaching them that something more than what Christ had already done was necessary for their justification before God. You see, this incident in Antioch, 14 years later, was a mirror to the churches in Galatia who were faced with their own false teachers who taught a gospel in which the law still stood with all of its demands. You see, at the heart of Paul's theology, and we would do well to have this at the heart of ours as well, it's not a doctrine, it's not a religion, it's not a rule book, but it's an event. And the event is Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. Everything for Paul hangs on this event. For if the law For if by the law, if what we do for God is what justifies us, then we are doomed. Or as uh, Paul says it, for if what we do for God is what justifies us, then Christ died for nothing. You see, there is a certain gravity that's necessary for us to recount our sin and our condition. We are among those who were once held deep within the grasp of powers, of sin, powers, and principalities. And we all know that many of us are still held within those deep grasp of powers, of sin, and powers, and principalities. They affect us. They affect our homes. They affect our churches. They affect our lives. They affect our country. They affect our world. We know what that's like to be underneath the roof of powers of sin, powers and principalities. And if you're in your life, you have never felt like it was falling apart, and that it was out of your control, then perhaps you're sleeping. And yet, in the midst of our falling apart, we realize, wow, apart from myself, apart from what I am and what I've done through Christ, I have been made free. That's the good news. It's not what you did. 
It's what you didn't do. It's what he did for us. Karl Barth, a 20th century Swiss theologian and academic who lived during Hitler's reign, would often spend much time in prisons preaching to the inmates inside. The setting is extremely important for us to grasp for the understanding of what he writes. For Paul, he's preaching to people who have already been tried, already been judged, already been found guilty, and already have been condemned. And he tells them a story. And he recounts to them one of a familiar Swiss legend. Bart writes this, You probably all know well the story of the legend of the rider who crossed the frozen lake of Constance by night without knowing it. When he reached the opposite shore, he was told from whence he had came, and he broke down horrified. This is the human situation, Bart continues. When the sky opens and the earth is bright, when we may hear, by grace, you have been saved. In such a moment, we are like that terrified writer. When we hear this word, we involuntarily look back, do we not? Asking ourselves, where have I been? Over an abyss, in mortal danger. What did I do? The most foolish thing I have ever attempted. What happened? I was doomed and miraculously escaped, and now I am safe. You ask, do we really live in such danger? Yes, we live on the brink of death, but we have been saved. Yes, we Look at our Savior. Look at our salvation, he says. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know for whose sake he is hanging there? For our sake. Because of our sins. Sharing our captivity. Burdened with our suffering. He nails our life to the cross, Bart says. This is how God had to deal with us. From this darkness, he has saved us. He who is not shattered after hearing this news may not yet have grasped the word of God. By grace, you have been saved. So to the person who found me, with a sign on my back and the question that they only have to let linger is am I a sinner? I still emphatically state yes. Of course you are. But so am I. But here. Here is news. Good news. 
I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.